Easter week. We call this Passion Week in some cases. Um, hope maybe you're reading along um, during the week with the life of Christ as he is uh, now already coming to Jerusalem. He's moving in and out with his disciples, but a heavy, heavy teaching week of Jesus to his disciples. There's so much to study this week as he's spending time with them uh, as he gets ready for the cross. So uh, take time, and if you haven't, go home and catch up with it. Re- catch up with his Passion Week and read what's happening to Jesus and what he's teaching on as he is just days now away from the cross. Um, what a mar- marvelous event. We're so grateful for the resurrection. Uh, Friday night, I'm really looking forward to Friday night. Good, I love Good Friday services. They really concentrate on the cross. And uh, we're going to have the seven sayings of Christ uh, we're going to look at all seven of those just briefly, each one of them. But we're going to put it all together. Uh, it's going to be neat. Some songs in between the sayings. It's, so make sure you come out if you, you can on Friday night. And then uh, Sunday morning, sunrise together. We don't do that very often. Get up early, you know, before the sun gets up and sit there and sing some songs together. Hear the word taught. What a, what a great thing. Bunch of crazy Christians, aren't we? That's funny. And then sun, uh, Sunday morning... This, there's a wonderful choir numbers and special numbers will be sold and saying, I mean, saying, and we'll we'll enjoy that together. So, all right, Father, thank you for letting us gather. We would not have any desire on our own to be here if it was not for you. Things of the world would have complete control over us. We would no more desire to know what the Bible says than than anything else in the world. We would be chasing our personal dreams, but you have captured us, Lord. And we can let go of those things and dedicate life and time for you, Lord, because you're worthy of it. And so tonight again, the brethren gather, the elect, the saved, the children of God, the family of God, the household of God, gathers together to hear your word. And we pray that you would break it forth and pierce our hearts and cause us to love you and trust you more, cause us to turn from sin as we see ugly things recorded in the scriptures. May we run after you, Lord. Thank you for this time in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 37 and 38, we started the life of Joseph. The last 13, 14 chapters here are focused mainly on Joseph. We're going to get an introduction to him in chapter 37, but then we've got to deal with Judah and Tamar. It's, it is, I'm looking around the room, it is a little bit, uh, probably in today we might rate it R, chapter 38. So we'll be careful as we go through it, but we will look at it. It's important. God put it in there. Um, it is something that we want to um, look at and try to understand why it's there and what God thinks of sin. But these final chapters of the book of Genesis are dedicated to the life, life of Joseph. And And we see his life. He's encouraging to us. He is a type, and we'll look at some of that tonight. But we also see the godless behavior. There's a contrast in here. There's a contrast right off the bat about Joseph and his brothers. God is going to show in the Word the difference between righteous living and unrighteous living. And he needs to be the motivation of righteous living. Joseph was the first child of Rachel, as you remember, she had, could not have children for a long time. Eventually, God opened her womb, and she had Joseph. Um, this is the wife that Jacob loved most. 
And so there was favoritism of the wife and there is favoritism of the son. We'll see that today. He had his last child while born under the labor of Laban, right? He was laboring for Laban in Padaram. Um, and this was the last child born there. Joseph 17, we look in verse 2, it tells us he's 17 in this text. He lives to be 110 and dies in chapter 50, verse 22. So we have 93 years of Joseph's life recorded for us. And so we'll study that and learn. In these 93 years, they set a stage for the coming Messiah 2,000 years later. There is a preservation of the line of Judah that is spectacular through the life of Joseph. God is going to take this infant nation that in all intents and purposes, if you look at just the individuals of the nation, they are godless. (laughs) But yet God has a greater plan. But without these chapters, I want you to think about this, without these chapters in the Bible, it would be impossible to understand the formation of the nation of Israel. These are paramount to understand God's plan for the nation of Israel and to understand that God is going to grow this little nation inside the boundaries of a massive nation so through this lesson we're going to watch as we these pastors unfold he's going to take these 70 some odd people and put them in the middle of Egypt in the land of Goshen probably one of the most fertile areas and then grow them there and then we'll, we'll see what I do next. But if we get to Exodus, it says, it says, then a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And then God's going to get ready to bring him out. So um, fascinating study in the life of Joseph. I want to look at a couple of thoughts tonight and lots of big passages here moving through this. But let's look at our first thought. Prophetic dreams and the future of Israel. Prophetic dreams and the future of of Israel. If you have your Bibles, look at uh, Genesis chapter 37. Let's just look at the first four verses first. Now Jacob lived in a land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. And Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flocks with his brother while he was still a youth. And along with the sons of Bilhad and Zephah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, jo- now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a varied colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, as we begin to look at this, we begin to see where they're at. Jacob is now living near his father's original homestead. And his livestock, though, are spread out in many places because just of the sheer size. Um, one of the questions you always get when you own a ranch, which you shouldn't ask ranchers, this is a no-no, but people ask all the time, oh, how many livestock do you have? Um, uh, that's like asking somebody how much money you have in your checking account. So you don't ask that question when you go out to a big ranch. Don't ask them that question. It's very offensive. Anyway, what your livestock amount is based on your grazing, how much, how much land you have and how much grass grows on that land. Irrigated pasture, of course, grows more. You can have more denser population. But in this day and age, this was probably dry land, in many cases, ranching and, and uh, feeding of cattle and livestock across 
large amounts of land. Well, we know that Jacob was probably one of the most wealthiest people, and so he has lots of herds and flocks, and so they're, they're spread out all over. And there is little doubt that the biblical record records, um, re, uh, records this life of Joseph, so we understand how really big Jacob's life had become, his ministry, or his, excuse me, his, his belongings. They are really spread out. And so he has been certainly blessed by God. But notice verse 2. It says these are the generations, the records of the generations of Jacob. But then it just turns to Joseph. It says when Joseph was 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhad and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife. And it added to that, while he's out there pasturing, he brings back a poor report of his brothers. Now, generations of Jacob... But the story is going to focus on on Joseph, particularly here in 37, and it's highlighted by the wickedness of his brothers. Now, the text shows a clear distinction um, between Joseph's righteousness. It was interesting. I read quite a few thoughts on this. There are some people that think that uh, Joseph was kind of a little snot in in some ways in here. Um, And yet, I, I looked at it as deeply as I could, and, and I don't think so. I, I, I think there's a clear contrast between Joseph and his godless brothers. Remember also, the brothers had recently mass murdered at a whole town. Uh, and, and they'd stole the men, uh, stole the women and children and all their stuff, and, and Reuben had slept with his, his father's wife, uh, one of his father's wives, and it's not good. So there's nowhere but up to go for Joseph. <laughs> Everything has been pretty poor from the brothers so far. Notice in verse 3, there's this clear favoritism. The Bible says that Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his sons. So clear favoritism towards Joseph just put him in a, in a difficult spot. Verse 4 tells us the, the result of that. Here's the result of favoritism. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, so they hated him. The word hated is used three times um, through here. Once in, in, in verse 4, again in verse 5, and again in verse 8. The Bible's very emphatic. These brothers hated Joseph. And it's a strong term. You can look it up in the Hebrew text. It's, I mean, it is hate with intent to murder. <laughs> right from the beginning. This is deep hatred. But Jacob had ingrained this lifestyle of favoritism into the family. It, it had been taught. Rachel he loved. He put up with Leah. He bore children with her. But, so this, this idea of favoritism had come up. And I think this is the results of that. And though Jacob, Jacob's sin is, is clear, the brothers are not without excuse though. And it's so important to understand that sin is sin and each person is responsible for their choice. And it's still a problem today, right? We always want to blame shift whatever we're doing. We blame shift it on the environment around. The world says, well, just get them out of that environment and they'll be better. Well, their hearts (laughs) as a problem. That's where it's all coming from. So there's a problem there. Um, We blame it on parents, right? I don't know how long ago that big run took. It always comes back around after a little while is... Uh, the psychology movement blames it on the parents. Um, so often we hear things blamed on the church. 
Well, the church did this. They didn't do this. And they didn't do that. And blah, blah. Blame, blame, blame. Ultimately, we all are responsible for our sins. And it's very important, though we see the sin of Jacob and his favoritism upon a son, his favoritism upon a wife, these boys made their choice. And their choice was often very, very wicked. Notice in verse 3, this varied colored tunic, we, you know, uh, coat of many colors. Uh, much has been made about this coat, and indeed it probably was an amazing garment. If you're a seamstress, you would probably want to look into this. I mean, it's something probably marvelous. And remember, Jacob's probably the most wealthiest man in the area. Um, so money's not a problem. It's most likely was custom made from the finest fabrics of the land and doubtlessly laced probably with precious metals. <laughs> this thing's beautiful. And it was likely a great cause of envy. And envy was not new to Jacob's camp. They envied. There was envy between the wives and now there's envy between the sons. But this coat... <laughs> This coat of many colors was a clear sign to all that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the sons. Notice verse 5 through 8. And Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please, please listen to this dream which I've had. For before, um, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field that had been very common. And lo, my sheave rose up. And stood erect, and behold, the sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to my sheath. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for the dreams and for his words. Well, somewhere during these teenage years, Joseph has two very, very prophetic dreams. These dreams just heightened the hatred of his brothers. Notice in verse 6, Joseph was truly affected by these dreams. He really desires to communicate. Notice what he says, please listen to me. It's, it's such a passionate plea, you begin to realize he knows this is from God. God has spoken to him. There's, there's a dream here. Certainly there's no scriptures written now, and certainly we don't think God speaks through dreams and visions as he did because we have a completed canon, we have a completed word of God, and the word is sufficient for us now. But this is a time, the Bible says, in past times he spoke through dreams and visions and so forth. And so he's passionate about this. But the brothers don't understand it. Verse 7 um, this will be fulfilled in coming years. He says, look, uh, this is what happened in this dream. My, my, sh- my sheaves stood up and all of your sheaves, they all bowed down before me. Listen, you ever have a cocky little brother? <laughs> That's how they're looking at this. I, I'm not sure. I don't see anything in the language that Joseph was doing this to be arrogant. He's passionate. God had talked to him. God had spoken through this dream and given him a vision of something uh, and he may not have fully understood it, probably doubtlessly did. But he wanted to share it with his family who had no desire for the things of God. <laughs> and so this is just another thing that just caused them to hate him more. Notice verse 8. Um, it, it says, then his brother said to him, Are we actually gonna, you're actually going to reign over us? You're going to rule over us? So clearly Joseph explained the dream accurately and the brothers got it. He just said, look, I'm, I was a sheave, you were a sheave, you bowed down in front of me. I just want to tell you about it. Well, they got it. 
And they knew exactly what that looked like. And little did they know in the coming years, chapters for us, that's exactly what will happen. But their hatred grows. And remember, Joseph is the favorite son and the brothers seem to be doing the hard work. They're out there tending the herds. Joseph's given authority to check on them. You know, we're out there in the dust, we're out there in the heat, we're out there with the wolves and the lions and, and the predators and the mean people, and you send, you send Joseph out here, Mr. Dreamer, to check on us, and then he gives a bad report? I, think, I mean, Joseph's got a deck stacked against him, doesn't he? And Dad hasn't really helped here a whole lot. Notice verse 9 to 11. Now, he had still another dream. Uh, one was enough, but here comes another one. And he related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still had another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related this to his father and his brothers. And his fathers rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous. There's another term along with all those hatreds. Jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, the first dream had the family feel to it, didn't it? We're sheaves, you know, brothers and so forth. There's still a family look to this, but now it has kind of a universal look to it, right? The sun and the moon and the stars, and, 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 and it's bigger, right? And, and certainly it's prophetic. Certainly the family would come. Later on we'll see in Egypt, the family will come and they will bow down because they need grain from him. But in the study of, of, of Joseph's rule there in Egypt, the whole world is coming. The whole, the whole earth is coming. All the nations are coming to Egypt because they have grain. So there's tremendous prophecy here. In this dream, the second one is actually bigger than the first. But this dream disturbs Jacob. Notice his comment. He, he says, wait a minute here. Are, are we, mom, dad, we, we to bow down? In essence, I think what Jacob's saying is, what's going on here? Maybe, maybe Jacob's thinking something like this. Up to now, God has been communicating with me. I have felt secure because in Bethel, the Lord came and he told me it was going to be good and I'm going to have a nation and, and children that outnumbers the stars and he, he secured that and he gave me the ladder vision and all that stuff and... And now he's talking to my 17-year-old boy. What's going on here? This teenage kid is receiving direct revelations from Yahweh. And Joseph's now talking about sun, moon, and stars bowing before him. Good heavens, maybe Jacob is saying, what is going on here? And up to now, Jacob has been the center of divine attention. And maybe this put him out just a little bit. Notice verse 10 is very interesting. I had to think about this one for a little bit. It says, your mother... Wait a minute, mom's dead. We studied that back in verse 35, chapter 35. She dies on the way from Shechem to Hebron. So what is this? Isn't, isn't she dead here? Well, there's a couple of solutions as I kind of work through this thinking about this. Um, some of the theologians believe that Jacob is referring to the afterlife. And there's quite a few guys who will write on this. Um, that Jacob believed in the afterlife, that God would, he would be with God some way and, and she would be there. Um, I, I think certainly that's probably true. That there, Well, actually, it is true. There is an afterlife and, and, and Jacob certainly would be there. But I think the second's probably a little better idea. And this is what I think it is. I think it's more of a past perfect tense. 
Meaning that Joseph probably had these dreams in the narratives gathering this all together in a scene of his teenage years. And he probably had these dreams on the way to Shechem, um, while living in Shechem on his way to Hebron before Rachel's death. And the narrative, it's covering this large span of time, gathering in many events as they're traveling and, and farming and ranching and doing all these things and helps uh, describe the current status. So uh, this might also explain um, possibly even this special coat. So here's what I think happened. I think this is probably, it's in a narrative. It's happening over a great large amount of time because he's gone and checked on the boys and, and different things have happened. And somewhere along the line, while Rachel was still alive, he had these visions. And so he's, he's reaccounting, the Bible's reaccounting these things. And why I think it might, it, I thought about this today, I thought, well, Maybe this is where the special coat came from. <laughs> Maybe Jacob said, hmm, Yahweh's talking to my son. And, and that might have something to do with it. Um, I, I don't know that just him being the son of Rachel, because he has Benjamin later, and, and Benjamin gets protected, of course, when Joseph seems, he thinks Joseph's dead. But there's something unique while he's so much concentrating on Joseph. And could it be, could it be, this is just my thoughts here, could it be that Jacob recognizes God's revealing stuff to him and he identifies this son? So I think it's crunched up in this narrative of this past, past uh, per- perfect tense bringing all things kind of together into this um, present moment here. Now, um, by the time Joseph is sent from Hebron back to Shechem to check on his brothers again, or maybe that's in the same account here, um, and he gives an account of the flocks. Now, he's 17-year-old, so he's living at home. He's with Jacob, and his younger brother, Benjamin, is there. So verse 11 tells us that Jacob rebukes Joseph for this, for this dream that's happening. He's, he's a young boy. He's having this dream. There's this rebuke there. But, but yet, Jacob says, wait a minute, there could be something to this. And, and he keeps these sayings in mind. Remember when when the angel came to Mary in um, Luke 2, and, and, and the child's born, and they're all, excuse me, the child's born, and all the shepherds are there, and the angels, and all that stuff, and she says she pondered these things. It's a very similar saying. He began to ponder this. And I think this is all tying together in this time frame of their moving from Shechem to Hebron and then back to flocks that are going on here. Uh, and so this dream reveals the plan of God. And, and, and so what you say, well, what is he thinking about? Well, one, he's thinking about why is God revealing this to my son Joseph? Two, he's thinking about is this God's plan for how he's going to bring about this uh, revelation he gave to me about a great nation that would outnumber the stars and the sands of the sea and forth. He's, compl- he's, he's, he's contemplating these things. And so... These dreams were revealing the plan of God and certainly how he was going to save the nation of Israel and protect the seed of the Messiah. However, certainly Jacob did not see what was coming next. Here's my second thought. Slavery that will bring salvation. Now, the ten older brothers are basically most likely here totally independent of their father. Many of them are probably married or getting married. We're going to see that in the next chapter. They have children of their own. Joseph has become unaccepted, he's unwelcome, and he remains living in Hebron. This is the setting here as we move into this next part of the chapter. 
But but despite all the favoritism, Jacob sees the righteousness of Joseph in comparison to these ten sons, these other sons who have been fornicators and murderers. And so he he seems to keep him close. But at the same time, their flocks are scattered all over. They're grazing again back up near Shechem. And there, and there is, is a widespread uh, of what he owns. And so he, he needs to get word to them. And so he's going to send Jacob, excuse me, Jacob's going to send Joseph back there again. Now you go, well, remember they were up in Shechem and they just wiped out a whole village of people. Um, don't you think they would have some problems? But remember the Bible said, as we were studying last week, it said that God put fear on the hearts of all those people around them. And so as they moved around and did whatever they want, it seems that these nations and these people groups around them would not bother them, and they were grazing wherever they wanted to be. And so here they are grazing again in their favorite spots. It seems to be near Shechem. It's just outside of the the Jordan River, 10, 20 miles west of that where the grazing is outstanding. Let's pick the story back up in verse 12 again. Then his brothers went to pasture the flock, father's flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will go. Joseph says, I will said, said to him, I will go. Then he said to them, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. He's done this before, the last time he brought a bad report. Now he's sending him back out again. Remember, his brothers hate him. They're jealous. All that's played into this story. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flocks. And then the man said, they, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dotham. Now, Jacob here um, has not heard from the boys in quite some time. He's concerned. He wants to know how the flocks are doing. This is their livelihood, these flocks. The, uh, the, the wool sold from them, the, the, the calves and goats and lambs, all produces income to run this great enterprise of Jacob. And so he charges Joseph with the task of checking on them. Now, Shechem's over 50 miles from Hebron. It's north of that. He would have gone through what would be a future, future Jerusalem and then, and then traveled probably two to three days to find him. Now, being a favorite son, he probably didn't travel alone, even though the text shows that. Verse 15, he's wandering around in the field. I, I found this kind of interesting. What does that mean? Why is he wandering around in the field? Anybody have a thought on that? <laughs> um, here's my thought. This is my, my commentary. If you're trying to figure out where your ten brothers are and all the livestock, what are you looking for? Tracks. <laughs> and so, uh, and again, you, you realize that some grazing area, I mean, we had area where, you know, it was an acre per animal to, to, to be able to feed them out in the high deserts of Northern California and Nevada and so. So you needed a full acre per animal. Sometimes it's five to ten acres per animal depending on how the grass grows. So you can imagine how much ground you actually need for thousands of head of livestock. So, so they're probably concentrated in one area. They certainly would have set up camps. There would have been fire pits. There would have been probably leftover trash of some sort or something there that would have sent. And he's trying to figure out which way they, they went. He's just a teenager. 
And some come, and then there's this exchange. Someone, this, whoever this is, um, says, hey, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I'm looking for my brothers. They said, well, they're in Dotham. Well, that's about 10 miles northeast of Shechem, and it's right close to the Jordan River. Notice verse 18, 18 through 22. And when they saw him from a distance, so now he's walked probably, I would say, maybe another half a day that covered that 10 miles, or, or road, or whatever it took. Um, and they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they, now, they're, now it's speaking of the brothers, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him, and throw him into one of these pits, and we will say a wild piece has devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this, and rescued him out of their hands, and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into a pit that is in this wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. Unfortunately, um, Joseph has to go another half a day's walk and guess what's waiting for them. These guys see him coming. And, and it's a conceived plot, isn't it? We would call this premeditated. They plot it. They seen him coming from a great distance. I don't know how shiny this coat was, but they knew it was him. And he's coming from a distance. And quickly, these ten brothers, nine of them especially, formulate a, a murderous plot against their own blood, against their own brother. And the Bible, we know the Bible, James 1 says that when sin is, is uh, conceived, to give, uh, lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when is accomplished, gives birth to death. And this is what they're about to do. Notice verse 19, it reveals that they see no spiritual value in Joseph's dreams. It says, here comes this dreamer. They see nothing from God in that. They don't want any part of those things. Uh, sometimes you feel this when you love the word of God and you try to share it with somebody and maybe it's a family member and someone just does not care for that stuff. They'll let you know. And it, it just shows that here he's saying, God has been showing me these dreams and all that is to them is just some joke. He's a dreamer. Verse 20 shows the depravity of murder and lies. Let's kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. Let's, let's say, let's lie. So look at this. There's a plot. There's, there's a design of how we're going to do it. And then what our story is going to be. This is 2020 stuff, isn't it? I mean, they, they planned this out. And then, again, this is a rejection of God. And, and I would say this is even farther. This could be a rejection of the prophet of God. Because Joseph feels some prophetic sense in this that God is telling people, particularly his family, through him of what's going to happen in the future. Now verses 21 and 22, um, all the people of all the people to come to the rescue, it's Reuben. Now, now Reuben's certainly the oldest uh, brother and he's making steps to attempt to save his little brother's life. But Reuben, he's no saint either. He's already slept with his father's wife. He doubtlessly is a part of the problem with uh, uh, Simeon and uh, Simon and, and Levi and the murder of, of all those men back in Shechem. But here, it's interesting. Reuben is mature enough to see that the horror of his nine brothers is about to do. And maybe he justified it this way. Hey, killing a bunch of people who raped our sister is one thing, but this is our brother. 
And so he, he wants to stop this. And in order to redirect this intense ha- hatred his younger brothers have for Joseph, he offers an alternative plan. And let, let's, let's not kill him, Reuben says. Let's shed no blood. Let's throw him into a pit. Because his goal was to rescue him out of that. Notice that. So he is, he's trying his hardest, humanly, to rescue Joseph out of the bloodthirsty hands of his brothers. But what's amazing in this story is our sovereign God is on the way and he's way out in front of these boys. Look at this in verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped him of his tunic. That's the first thing they're going to deal with. That coat, man. Let's get that thing. The, the varied colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into a pit. Um, and now the pit was emptied without water. So it's probably an old out, dug out well. Now, Notice what they see coming here. Um, verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal, and they raised up their eyes and looked. Behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites, of all people, was coming from Gilead. And with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brother, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then some of the Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up, probably put him up on a camel, and lifted Joseph up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. What I love about this is right in the right in the climax of the possible death of Joseph. Because if these nine brothers get their way, they're going to kill him. Here, they look up, and here comes the caravan. Now you think about as, what, what we love about the Bible is we know the story. We know what's going to happen. God has to get this little nation into Egypt. And you think, well, why not just move them down there? But God doesn't do things the way we would think. He sends Ishmaelite caravan. This is the nation, birth from the rejection of God's will of Abraham and Sarah, they rejected God's promise and tried to do it on their own and, and brought about another nation that has, has and will be uh, enemies to the nation of Israel. And God sends that group by in a caravan to take Joseph to a place in Egypt where eventually the seed of Christ will be protected. So it's an amazing thing when you think about God's sovereignty of how he works this out. And they're going to need this safety. There's a great, great famine coming. Now, I read a little bit on this because I was interested in where Dotham was and why these guys would have been here. There's no main trade routes there. And I think this what made my curiosity peak even more. There is really no major trade routes through there. And it's interesting, this caravan would have even been there. Um, one commentary said that most likely they were buying and trading in these surrounding small towns and hitting these people up and trading a few things and filling their saddles and, and uh, livestock and on their way to Egypt. And so that makes sense. And so Dotham's just a small, out-of-the-way community, but God provided in a place where you wouldn't think it was possible. Notice in verse 25, after taking Joseph's coat, they probably um, roughed him up a bit. They threw him into a pit. Um, but, but there's such callousness here. Look in verse 25. It says, Then they sat down to eat a meal. <laughs> 
when you hate God, and you probably have said this, you watch things on the news, you hear about some awful murder or some wicked thing done to somebody, you go, man, what callousness. And you read this text, they, they're, they're plotted to kill their teenage brother. These are grown men. And they sat down to eat a meal. Let's sit down, let's have a bite of some mutton or something. Um, and, and so there's just a callousness to these boys here as they sit on the edge of this pit where their brother is down in there. These are murderous, fornicating men who have no desire for the will of God. By God's providence, this caravan comes along. Judah's smart enough to say, well, let's sell them, let's make some money, which doesn't make sense in itself. Uh, Jacob's probably the most wealthy man in the area, and they're going to make the price of a slave from him. These, this wealthy family, let's sell him, make some money, send him on our way, get rid of him. But God has his hand in all of those things. Verse 26 and 28, the murdering, um, murdering others is one thing. You know, you see him go, Judah's going, look, you know, we've done some pretty bad things, but let's not murder our brother. Um, so so just, just quickly before I go on, there's some types here that we start to see come out of Joseph here. Number one, just not in so much any random or in any particular order here, he's sold for the price of a slave. Two days from now, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was sold for the price of a slave. 30 pieces of silver in that day. He's righteous among the wicked. Christ is righteous among the wicked. He's he's walking on earth with sinners. There's such a typology that we see in there. There's no record of Joseph speaking back. Nothing in the text. It doesn't mean he didn't, but at least the text does not record that Joseph spoke back. Can you imagine the language they were using with their brother? The things that were going on. The plot so thick that they were planning to kill him. Can you imagine what they were saying to him? And yet we see no response by Joseph. Christ was led to, uh, like a lamb, led to slaughter, but without a word. He's also hated among his brethren. Hated among his brethren. Um, That that too shares a type. Um, You can remember the scene in Passion Week as he's moving towards the cross on, on Friday and and Pilate's coming out and said, this man's innocent. Says it three times in the text. Study it three times. He says, this man is innocent. And they cried all the more, crucify him. Kill him. Kill him. Kill him. And, and that's the plan here. Premeditated. Let's get rid of him. We do not want this dreamer any longer. And so you start to see some of these types uh, the, the reflection of Christ in Joseph. And, and so we see types throughout the scriptures. But something least worth to talk, stop and note. Notice verse 29 as the story continues here. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. It's a good reaction here. Shows a little bit of heart here. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? This is quite a statement. So they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the tunic in blood. Verse 32, and they sent the varied colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this, please examine it and see whether there's your son's tunic or not. 
I, I would imagine Reuben was probably away making arrangements to get Joseph back out of the pit. Doubtlessly, Joseph came with some guys that had set up camp somewhere, and he was wandering on to find his brothers. He probably went back, got those guys. Hey, we're, I'm going to get him out of there. You guys get him home before my brothers do harm to him. I think that's probably what was going on. He knows this murderer's brothers and their capabilities. He's seen it. So he's working on getting them out of there. And verse 30 shows the responsibility he felt as the older son. Notice, notice he says, what, 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 where am I to go? Do you think I can go back home as the oldest son and face Jacob, Father Jacob, without his favorite son? He's taking responsibility here, and you can see the passion in him. And so his hard-hearted brothers, they, they seem to just make some cold response. Verse 31, well, we sold him as a slave. <laughs> we were going to kill him, but we didn't. Come on, give us some slack. Let's kill a goat. Let's drench his coat in blood. Dad will buy it. No problem. This is their blood, this is their blood brother. This is their own flesh and blood. Verse 32, it's possibly... The servants that Joseph was traveling with, they took this back, right? Verse 32 says, And they sent the very colored coat and brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Please examine to see if this is your son's or not. And this is a grim, a, grim, a grim scene. I don't, you know, some of you have gone through this. and You're in this room where you've heard of the loss of a loved one, and it's difficult. And you, I mean, I can't help, even though Jacob is not, probably done some of the things he should done and he's favored. You can't help but read 33 through 36 and, and weep here. Then he, Jacob, examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. He buys the lie. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph surely has been torn into pieces. The imagery that's going through his father's head. So Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And then all of his sons, they finally show up and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and he said, surely I will go down to Sheol, his death is the Hebrew word for death, in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. This is difficult, isn't this? Jacob hears the story, examines the coat. He said he's been killed. And no amount of comfort consoles Jacob. He had idolized this son and now he's gone. And Jacob again is experiencing deep sorrow. All the while, now think about this, all the while the sons know exactly what happened. And they let their father go through that. It's devastating. You go, man, these are just godless people. Verse 36 ends the chapter with this little meanwhile back at the ranch. <laughs> The Mennonites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of his bodyguard. So think about this. The text, this chapter ends with this thought. Jacob's on the slave block. It's, it's pretty eerie to think about that. In one camp... Father is weeping, unconsolable, no children, no grandchildren, nobody can console him. His favorite son is dead in his mind. He's dead. He is not alive. Meanwhile, that son is miles and miles away in Egypt being sold like an animal. And the Bible just says simply in verse 36, he was sold. 
He was sold. I, I don't think I'm going to try to tackle 38 just for the sake of time, but um, when, when you study this, the, particularly the Old Testament, it seems as we look at this that there's two groups of people. <laughs> there's a group of people who have means and everybody else is a slave. And it's just accepted. And, and I, I, as I thought about this more and more as I went through this text today, there's such, there's such anger over slavery in our country. And I, I, man, it's such a, just a terrible mark on our nation, isn't it? It's just a terrible mark on our nation. Um, and, and yet, and yet slavery is such part of the Old Testament. And this is why so many people reject the Bible because it talks about slavery and things like that. But it's such a clear mark on the depravity of man, isn't it? How wicked man can get. We are 37 chapters into the Bible. And we have murder, rape. We, we have uh, uh, planned murder. <laughs> uh, we have devastating families, right? The murder of all those fathers and husbands and men of the town and their wives and children taken into slavery. It's unbelievable what the Bible shows is the depth of the depravity of man. And yet, as we said last week, for God so loved the world. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, when I read this and study this, you have to study this. And you, I mean, I told Gina, I said, man, this is like, whoa, especially 38. And we're going to get into this next week. Um, you, you, you look at this and you go, why does God put up with us? I mean, I know my own heart. Do you know yours? Are you willing to talk about your own heart? How desperately wicked, if unchecked and unwashed uh, by the work of God, continually, not only just the salvation, but, but continually in a life where you and I could be in the depths of sin that we could accomplish? And yet God loves us? It, 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 it always astounds me when I read this of the mercy of God. He's a merciful God. And here's his plan. Little Joseph, 17-year-old young boy, beat up and thrown into a pit, put on a slave train, um, makes his way to Egypt, and, and with him comes God's plan to rescue this nation. And they're going to be there for 400 years. And they're going to come in as a, a people group of 70, Jacob and the sons and wives and children, um, they're going to come in as a group of 70 and go out as millions. And, and the plan is all run through this grid of these 10 and particularly 9 very godless brothers whose plot was to kill their brother. And God, God sees through all this and, and he has a plan that's greater than these wicked men. And I find, let me finish with this. I find such hope. So many of you go through difficult things, don't we? We have difficult things going on. And maybe it's bills or relationships that you're struggling with or whatever it is. These things can consume us sometimes. But God's got a plan. <laughs> he's got a plan and he's written it down for us and, he, and we know it. And he wants us to trust him. He wants us to hear his word and believe it. Um, and, and again, I think brothers and sisters, it's so easy that we often sit under a service and we hear the word of God taught or we read our Bibles and then we get up and I know this is true of myself and I confess this, that there's times I forget that God is in control. And you become overwhelmed by circumstances. 
and yet, I, I love studying these narratives because you can be a little bit like God. You sit back and you go, I can see the whole picture. God's going to take Joseph and he's going to protect him. He's not going to die in that pit. He's not going to die at the hands of his brothers. He's going to be put on a slave train and he's going to go to Potiphar's home and there he's going to excel but then he's going to be accused again and then he's going to go to jail and, and then he's going to end up in, in the palace and, 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 and God's going to rescue these, this family that's going to die in the family. And you can see it all. You can stand back and look at this. And we go, isn't that cool? But do you know he's looking at you the same way? <laughs> I got a call from the doctor today. It's cancer. Oh. And then our fears run, right? We don't know how that's all going to turn out or someone we love is going through something. But there's a God who does know how it's going to turn out. And he's, he's putting us in that position so we'll trust him. So we'll, we'll say, God, I, you love me. You've demonstrated it. You sent your son. While I was yet a sinner, you demonstrated your love for me. You will not put me on this earth to drown me. You're going to take me through this. And, and Lord willing, you have brothers and sisters in the Lord around you. Um, and some of you can give testimony to this. There's many in this room who have gone through some very difficult things these last couple of years, just since I've been here. Because I've wept with you and prayed with you and I know your stories. But here you are. And God surrounded you with dear friends and family members who love the Lord and love you. And God has a plan. And when I study this, I go, wow, man, there's probably some difficult things coming in my life. And there's probably difficult things coming in your life. Because you ain't going to get any younger. And your health ain't going to get any better, probably, as you get older. Because we live in a fallen world. And if the Lord Jesus doesn't return, we're going to get old and die. Boy, this is encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> but God knows that. And you can't add a day to your life. And what you can do is you can trust him and you can, you can eat well and you can exercise and, and you can certainly be spiritually strong. Those things will help you through it. But ultimately, all of this is to teach you to trust him. And when I read the stories of the Old Testament, the Josephs, Jacobs, the Abrahams, and I begin to say, wow, God, you could see this whole design. You could see exactly what you were going to do. If only they would trust you. And so I, I trust as we continue to plot our way or plow, plow our way through um, Genesis that it teaches us to trust God. Um, 38 is difficult, and I'll, I'll restrain to hold it to next week. It's difficult. And as I studied that, we have issues in our family, in our greater family, of just difficult things that are sinful and immoral, and it's hard. And I, and I read that, and I go, God, you don't care for this at all. And yet, he takes families through those things. And he always sustains those he made righteous. He sustains the righteous. He loves the righteous. And you're righteous because he made you righteous. And he'll sustain. And so 38 is an ugly chapter. It is one of the most difficult passages to study. It is full of prostitution and sex and selling and all kinds of things. I, I'm going to have to, I said, Gina, pray for me. I've got to say this somehow without offending too many people. But it's right, it's right out of the text. And you go, God, where are you in all of this? 
The son, the, the great, great, great grandfather of David is born out of 38. It's amazing. You get to the end of the chapter, you go, Perez? <laughs> he comes out of this? God is way out in front of us. He has the whole scene. One last thought. There's several Hebrew words when we study God's view of his omniscience and omnipresence and how he sees things. Um, there's a certain, several words that teach us that all things are before him. We even see that set of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1. Everything, all his things are before him. And so as I studied this, I thought about this today. I said, Lord, all of this is right before you. We live on this timeline, right? We're born here and we just kind of see things along the timeline. All that timeline of all of our lives, each and every one of us individually, and all of this world is all right in the face of God. He sees it all. He sees your cancer. He sees your wayward child. He, he sees our own hearts and thoughts and minds. He, he knows what's going on with with elderly parents. He, he, he knows what's going on with the economy. He knows what's going on with the governments of the world. He, he sees everything. It's all right in front of him. That's our God. And so take comfort, friend, if you are going through difficulties. And doubtlessly you are. If not, you will be soon. <laughs> you have a God who knows all things. And so let these lessons of Genesis teach you that God has a master plan. He has a master plan. You know what it is? To conform you to the image of Christ and bring you into his presence. Conform you into the image of Christ and bring you into his eternal presence. That's a pretty good plan. I like that. Let him do it. Father, thanks for getting us through one chapter here tonight. It is astounding. We see this young lad. He seems to desire you. Um, he, everything we can see in the text, he acts in a righteous way. And yet that righteousness and that desire to share what God had shared with him is just meet, met with hatred. It's, it's met with disdain. It's jealousy and envy and plots of murder. And this young lad, this poor young Joseph who he certainly was a sinner and would need your son to die for him, he's just doing what you've asked him to do, and he's caught up in some terrible things. We hear no word from him. He suffers silently, at least in the text. And then he's just sold for a mere cost of a slave. He's hated by his brethren. And yet, Lord, he becomes the salvation of the nation of Israel in a sense. The nation is saved because of his astute learning, his understanding of your, your word and how you direct him. That nation is brought into Egypt and saved. What a picture of the work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, give us eyes and ears to see these things. And then, Lord, help us, finally, Lord, as we quit tonight, to translate this into our own lives. That God has a great picture. He sees all things. They're all before him. And so when we, your children, go through difficulties, when there's things that we can't understand or we can't get our mind around it or don't know what God's doing, may we find comfort that you do. You do. And we can trust you. So I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here 
those here and some are at home watching and they're going through difficulties. Lord, help them know and trust God that he is perfect in all of his ways and he's got a great plan. And that's to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ and bring us into his presence forever. So Lord, help us submit to that plan. Thank you for this. Lord, we look forward to this weekend celebrating the resurrection of your son, our justification, our eternal glory is wrapped up in this great work that you do on Sunday 2,000 years ago. May we celebrate together with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.